Section eighteen of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume two continued. Having settled thus much of my plan in my own mind, I began my operations by making the maid presents every time I visited the mistress, and I took care to give those visits as much the air of an amour as I possibly could. I dare swear the girl thought Mrs. Gerard and I were upon the best terms imaginable. I affected to come at such hours as I was sure Mrs. Gerard was alone. I always made my visit short, as if through fear of being surprised with her, and went so far as to leave my chariot when I came in it at a distance from the house, and walked to it alone with the caution of one fearful of being observed. It was a matter of indifference to me whether Mrs. Gerard knew of this or not. My business was only to excite suspicions of an intrigue among her servants, in order to answer a future purpose. But if she were to know with what extreme precaution I visited her, my prudence could not but be very agreeable to her. She had her measures to observe as well as myself, as it was of consequence to her to conceal our acquaintance from Arnold's knowledge. She must necessarily be pleased at the pains I took, without her laying herself open in making the request, to conceal it from him, and she saw I was as careful as she could wish never to interfere with him. In short, we carried on a private intercourse that, if it could not be called gallantry, was something very like it for i amused complimented and flattered her so agreeably that i believe she began to think herself sure of me and wondered i did not make a better use of the favourable disposition she was in towards me but i trifled with such dexterity that even she with all the cunning she is mistress of could not possibly fathom my design having thus laid the foundation of my plot i made no doubt of being able to execute it with my lord v s assistance he was in raptures at the thoughts of our enterprise and swore he would never have forgiven me if i had not allowed him a share in it he said i would give my right hand to make mrs arnold happy adding besides it will save her husband from destruction for to my knowledge that woman has already almost ruined his fortune. I asked him, might we venture to let my lady into the secret? He said, by no means. My lady was too squeamish to be trusted with such a notable exploit. But when the affair was over, he would take upon him to excuse me to her, after he had diverted himself a little with her surprise. I fretted to death at Arnold staying so long in the country, as it delayed my enterprise. There was one circumstance, indeed, that a little compensated for this vexation, and that was that my long stay at V. Hall, which could be no secret to him, though he dropped visiting there on purpose to avoid me, might in some measure help to efface his injurious suspicions with regard to his lady and me. Besides, it gave the better colour to my other designs. At last the long-sought-for opportunity arrived. 
Arnold was obliged to go to London on his law affairs. I took care to inform myself of the day from Mrs. Gerard's maid, and learnt at the same time that her mistress purposed going to town in a week after, for she still endeavoured to save appearances, and dared to the last to pretend to reputation. I proposed giving a ball, to take my leave of the ladies, on the night subsequent to the day fixed for Arnold's departure from South Park. My lord, almost as anxious for the event as myself, immediately dispatched invitations all over the neighbourhood. There was not a person of any fashion left unasked. Mr. Arnold and Mrs. Gerard, you may be sure, were not forgot. From the former, as we expected, we received a civil apology. From the latter, a message that she would be sure to come. This was at a distance of eight days from the appointed time. In the interim I continued to visit Mrs. Gerard as usual, and took care to bespeak her for a partner. Arnold went to town as opportunely as we could wish. I called on Mrs. Gerard the same morning, and having my lord's permission for it, engaged her to come early enough to drink tea, as there were a good many more ladies invited for the same purpose, and at going away I dropped a few mysterious hints to her maid. In the evening there was a very large company met at V Hall, and having concerted my whole plan, when the ladies were engaged at the tea-table, I slipped out, mounted my horse, and rode to Mrs. Gerard's house. I desired to see her maid, and taking her aside told her not to be surprised, but that her lady was to go off with me that night, that the thing had for certain reasons not been determined until that very evening, that I had just snatched a minute to desire her to get all her lady's trinkets together, and whatever money and bills she might have in her escritoire. In order to this I gave her a parcel of small keys which I had carried in my pocket for the purpose, and bid her hold herself in readiness against seven o'clock, when a person should call on her who would conduct her to a place where she should find her lady and me. I needed no arguments to persuade the girl. The thing appeared plausible enough. She was fully convinced of the intimacy between her mistress and me, and knowing her too well to have a doubt of her baseness, she concluded I acted by Mrs. Gerard's directions, and promised punctually to obey them. She said she could easily convey away in the dark as many things as she could conveniently carry and to avoid observation from the rest of the servants she would wait at a cottage hard by which she named to me till her conductor arrived whether any of the keys i gave her would fit the locks or not i was not much concerned if they did not i concluded she would think her mistress had made a mistake and that she would force them open rather than fail Having settled this material point, I got back to my Lord V's without having been missed by the company. Our ball was very well conducted. I danced with Mrs. Gerard, and we passed a very agreeable evening. 
we supped at twelve and she had ordered her chariot to come a little after that hour but i had given my fellows their cue as the dancing was not renewed the company broke up between one and two mrs gerard was one of the first that offered to go but as her servants were not to be found she was detained till everybody else had taken their leave at length her coachman and footman were found in the cellar with one of my men all so drunk that they were not able to stand her servants were really so and mine counterfeited so well there was no discovering the cheat in this emergency nothing was more natural than the offering my servants to attend her home and of course to wait on her myself to see her safe she readily accepted the first offer but declined the other this was easily got over i handed her into the carriage and stepped in after her our route was settled we drove from my lord v s door and turning short from the road that led to mrs gerard's house we struck down a lane which was to carry us to our first destined stage which was at the distance of seven miles this was no other than a poor gardener's house to which place two of my emissaries had been dispatched that day to wait our coming with a travelling chariot and four stout horses i had taken care according to promise to send a trusty groom for the maid with a boy to carry her luggage they were both well mounted and had orders to carry her to an inn on the road to rochester and within about a mile of the town this inn was kept by a fellow who had formerly been my servant i had placed him there and he was entirely at my devotion he had already received his instructions and his house was to be our second stage i concluded the maid had arrived there long before us having had six or seven hours the start of us and the place was not more than twenty miles from her own house mrs gerard was not immediately aware of our going out of the road she was in high spirits and i kept her in chat as soon as she perceived it she cried out with some surprise lord mr falkland where is the fellow carrying us he has missed his way she called to him but the coachman who had orders not to stop unless i spoke to him only drove the faster pray do call to him said she the wretch has certainly got drunk with the rest of the servants i told her there was no possibility of turning in the narrow road in which we then were that when we got out of it i would speak to the coachman and beg of her in the meanwhile not to be frightened the lane was a very long one but our rapid wheels soon carried us to the end of it where i had appointed pivet and one of my footmen to meet us on horseback i had another servant behind the chariot whom i purposed to send back with it in the morning at the sight of two horsemen who were apparently waiting for us she screamed out oh the villain he has brought us here to be robbed she had a good many jewels on her and to say the truth had some reason for her fears the chariot had now got on a good open road and the horses rather flew than galloped the two horsemen joined us and kept up with us at full speed i saw she was heartily frightened and thought it time to undeceive her 
I was not ill-natured enough to keep her longer under the apprehensions of highwaymen, and thought she would be less shocked at finding there was a design upon her person than on her diamond earrings. Now, said I, taking one of her hands with rather more freedom than respect, since we were out of all danger of discovery or any possibility of pursuit, I will tell you a secret, and I spoke with an easy, assured tone. She drew her hand away. What do you mean, sir? Nothing, madam, but to have the pleasure of your company in a little trip I am going to take. Believe me, you are not in the least danger. You are under my protection. Those are my servants that you see riding with us, and you may judge of the value I set upon you by the pains I have taken to get you into my possession. Lord, Mr. Falkland! Why, sure you can't be serious! Never more so in my life, madam. I have long had a design upon you, but your connection with Mr. Arnold— my connection with mr arnold sir interrupting me i don't understand you come come mrs gerard you and i are old acquaintance you know tis no time for dissembling he has been a happy man long enough tis time for a woman of your spirit to be tired of him especially as i think i may say without vanity you do not change for the worse in falling into my hands the lady had now recovered her courage. She was no longer in fears of being robbed, and her spirits returned. "'You audacious creature! How dare you treat me thus! Have you the assurance to insinuate that there is anything criminal in my attachment to Mr. Arnold and his family?' "'My dear madam, I accuse you of no attachment to any of his family. He himself was the only favoured person.' "'Sure!' There never was such an impertinent wretch. But I know the author of this scandal. It was Mrs. And she dared to profane your sister's honoured name. But I despise her, and Mr. Arnold shall soon know how I have been affronted. And she fell a-crying. My dear Mrs. Gerard, I beg your pardon. I did not mean to offend you. If Mr. Arnold admired you, he did no more than what every man does who sees you. I beseech you to compose yourself. By all that is good, I mean you no harm. Be calm, I conjure you, and don't spoil the prettiest face in England with crying. A daring, provoking creature, she sobbed. What could put such an attempt as this into your head? And to what place are you carrying me? only to france my dear creature have you ever been there to france to france she exclaimed and do you dare to think you shall carry me there oh you'll like it of all things said i when you get there what do you think her reply was why neither more nor less than a good box on the ear i catched hold of her hand and kissed it you charming vixen, how I admire you for your spirit! She endeavoured to wrest her hand from me, but I held them both fast for fear of another blow. Base, insolent, ravisher, villain! As she rose in her epithets, I replied with, Lovely, charming, adorable, 
tender, gentle creature. She cried again, but they were spiteful tears, and did not create in me the least touch of that pity which on any other occasion they might have moved me to. I was glad our altercations had a short truce by the chariot's stopping at the gardener's cottage, where I had ordered my equipage to wait. All the family were in bed but the man's wife, who came curtsying to the door. I led, or rather lifted, Mrs. Gerard out of the chariot, for she would not give me her hand, and begging she would repose herself for a few minutes while I gave my orders to my servants, put her into the good woman's hands. She went sullenly in without making me any answer, and, seeing nobody but the old woman, she was convinced that complaints, or an attempt to escape, would be equally fruitless, and so prudently acquiesced. I soon dispatched my orders. I made the footman who came behind the chariot mount the box and directed him to drive to an inn in the next village to Mrs. Gerard's house, and from thence to send it home by someone who did not know to whom he belonged. I then ordered my own equipage to the door, and entering the cottage told the lady I was ready to attend her. The old woman presently vanished, so that, seeing nobody to apply to, she suffered me very quietly to put her into my chariot, and I placed myself by her. It was made on purpose for travelling. I took care to have nothing but wooden windows, to which I had the precaution to add a couple of spring-locks, which shut on drawing up, and were not without difficulty to be opened. One of the windows was already up, and I flirted up the other as soon as I got into the coach. It was a fine moonlight morning. The postillion cracked his whip, and though the roads were deep and dirty, the four horses darted away like lightning. "'I believe, madam,' said I, "'you are by this time convinced that my scheme is too well laid to be baffled by any efforts you can make.' I mean to treat you with due respect, and beg you will use me with a little more gentleness than you have done. That is all the favour I shall ask in return, till you yourself are disposed to show more." "'You are the most amazing creature,' said she, "'that ever breathed. What is the meaning that in the whole course of our acquaintance your behaviour never gave me room to believe that you were serious in your designs on me? and now at once you souse upon your prey like a hawk. "'I'll answer you in two words,' said I. "'When we first met you had a husband. Since the renewal of our acquaintance—you'll pardon me—it was no secret that you had a favoured lover in Mr. Arnold. I am not of a temper to solicit a lady by stealth, and I would not give a pinch of snuff for the woman who is not entirely at my disposal. Your attachments to Arnold forbade this, and I was determined to have you all to myself." "'My attachments to Mr. Arnold!' cries she, impudently again. "'Aye,' said I, coolly. "'It began to be talked of so openly that your reputation was mangled at every tea-table in the country and had you stayed much longer there you would have found yourself deserted by every female of character that knew you. 
Mr. Arnold's parting with his wife was by everybody charged to your account, and as she is reckoned a very good sort of a woman, was not that a pretty phrase? Everyone took her part, and were not sparing in their invectives against you. Add to all this that Arnold has certainly run out his fortune, and is so involved that it will not be possible for him long to make those returns of generosity which your merit deserves. You and I have been acquainted long. I am no stranger to your circumstances. I know at Captain Gerard's death your pension as his widow, and the very small jointure at Ashby, was the whole of your income. Arnold's love, it is apparent, has hitherto been bountiful. How long it could be in his power to continue it so, may be a question worth your considering. I found I had mortified her pride by mentioning the narrowness of her circumstances, and the demolition of her character. "'If all you say were true, sir, which is far from being the case,' with a toss of her head, you will find it no very easy matter to make me amends for what I shall, perhaps, lose for ever by this violence of yours, notwithstanding the smallness of my income, which you seem so well informed of, I have a considerable sum of money, and some valuable jewels lying by me, of which my servants may very probably rob me. I assured her upon my honour I would make good to her everything she should lose through my means, and would take care her situation should never again be upon the same precarious footing which it had been. I did not choose to mention the circumstance of my having secured her maid and her money too. I reserved that for an agreeable surprise. I had measures to observe. I did not want to be on good terms with her too soon for obvious reasons, as nothing was farther from my heart than a thought of gallantry. For this purpose I assumed a more distant behaviour, and affected to show her something like respect. I did not drop the least hint of my knowing that Mr. Arnold had made his lady uneasy on my account, much less that I suspected her for the wicked contriver of that mischief. I deferred the discussing of this point till a more favourable opportunity should offer, when it would be in my power to make a better use of it. My design was by degrees to make her satisfied enough with her situation not to wish to return to Arnold. When I had once brought her to this, I judged it would not be difficult to carry her still farther, to the point I aimed at, and that was, to write a letter to him of my dictating. You will think this was a strange expectation, and yet it was what I resolved to accomplish. I knew the turn of the mind I had to deal with. Bring a woman of this sort into good humour, and it is easy to wheedle her into compliance. She has no solid understanding, but possesses in the place of it a sort of flashy wit, that imposes on common hearers, and makes her pass for what is called clever. With a great deal of vanity and an affectation of tenderness, which covers the most termagant spirit that ever animated a female breast, her ruling and governing passion is avarice, and yet 
strange to tell generosity is of all things what she professes to admire and is most studious of having thought her characteristic her pretensions to this virtue i have opposed to her vice of avarice as the terms appropriated to each seem most contrary in their natures yet i do not mean by generosity that bounteous disposition which is commonly understood by the word no no she aimed at the reputation of this virtue in our most exalted idea of it and would fain be thought a woman of a great soul this phrase was often in her mouth and though her whole conduct gave the lie to her professions she would tell you fifty stories without a word of truth in any of them to prove how nobly she had acted on such and such occasions on the knowledge of this part of her temper i chiefly built my hopes of success i kept up a sort of forced conversation during the rest of our journey she was sullen but not rude as i was far from desiring to come to an eclairissement with her i did not wish to have her in better temper we reached the inn which was about a mile on our side rochester at eight o'clock in the morning this was a favourable hour as by that time every traveller must have left the stages they lay at the house stood alone and luckily enough had no company in it my old servant lamb had received my instructions by letter and was prepared accordingly for our reception this was the place to which i had ordered the maid to be carried she had arrived there some time before us and was safely lodged the chariot drove into the courtyard close to the door of the inn the step was let down in an instant and mrs lamb appeared to receive us we both darted into the house dressed as we were for a ball we made an odd appearance as travellers at that hour of the morning i believe this consideration made mrs gerard very readily hurry upstairs with the woman of the house i inquired for mrs gerard's maid having given orders to lamb that she should not be seen till i had first spoke to her i was carried into the room where she was she seemed very glad that we were arrived i desired her to lay out her lady's toilette which i concluded she had brought with her for that mrs gerard would presently put herself in a proper habit for travelling the maid told me she had brought her mistress's riding-dress with her, and as many other things of her wearing apparel as she could conveniently carry. I saw a vast heap of things lying unpacked on a bed which was in the room, and asked her how she had managed so cleverly to get such a number of things together without observation. She told me she had lost no time from the minute i left her till the arrival of her guide but had employed the interval in carrying out some of the best of her lady's clothes piece by piece and conveying them to the cottage which she could easily do without the servant seeing her for as it was dark she passed in and out without observation here she huddled them into a large portmanteau after this she went to examine her lady's escritoire but was a long time puzzled in endeavouring to open it as none of the keys i had given her answered she endeavoured to force it open with as little noise as possible but in vain she then had recourse to a second trial of the keys 
when one of them, which probably had been passed by before, luckily opened the lock, and she secured all the money and jewels she could find. These, said she, kept me in continual dread all the way as I travelled, for I have eight hundred pounds in banknotes, and though my lady has such a quantity of jewels on her, I am sure I have as many more about me, which I have hid in different parts of my clothes. I commended the girl's diligence, as indeed it deserved, and having before ordered tea and coffee into Mrs. Gerard's room, I now went in to breakfast with her. I found the woman of the house still with her, at which I was not at all uneasy, for as she had been tutored by her husband, I knew she was not to be wrought upon if Mrs. Gerard had attempted it. As I did not at that time desire a tete-a-tete with her, I contrived to keep Mrs. Lamb in the room by desiring her to drink tea with us. When we had done breakfast, I told Mrs. Gerard that, as I feared she was a good deal fatigued, if it was agreeable to her, we would remain where we were for that day, and that I would by all means have her think of taking some rest. She said she was extremely tired, and should like to get a little sleep. "'I think, madam, you had better go to bed,' said Mrs. Lamb. "'I have a very quiet chamber ready where no noise in the house can disturb you.' "'Show me to it,' answered Mrs. Gerard, with a tone of weariness and ill-humour. The woman obeyed. I followed. She carried her to the door of the room where the maid was, and throwing it open, Mrs. Gerard, who supposed she was attending her, went in. I stepped in after her. Mrs. Lamb withdrew. Mrs. Gerard's astonishment at the sight of her maid is past description. Rachel! in a tone of admiration. Rachel, who did not think there was anything unexpected or extraordinary in their meeting, was quite at a loss to guess at what her mistress wondered, and answered her in her turn with some surprise. Madam! and waited, expecting she would give her some orders, which finding the lady did not, the maid asked her very composedly, Would she please to undress? I hope, madam, said I, stepping forward, that Mistress Rachel has taken care to bring you everything you may have occasion for. I shall leave you in her hands, and wish you a good repose. Strange, astonishing creature, said Mrs. Gerard, looking at me with less anger than surprise. I bowed, and left the room. End of section 18